You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Well, good morning and peace be with you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Cole. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is a joy and a privilege to be able to be with you all this morning and to have the opportunity to share the truth from God's Word um, as we continue our, our survey of the life of Abram, who's later named uh, Abraham in the book of Genesis. And, and to kind of catch you up, last week we covered uh, Abram's journey into Egypt. And, and his journey into Egypt was the result of famine in the land of Canaan. And what we saw is that Abram made a lot of questionable decisions and that his faith faltered, that his his heart was not steadfast on the promises of God, but instead um, he, he acted in folly. And, and yeah, what we saw is that God was faithful to Abram, even though Abram didn't deserve God's faithfulness. Um, that, that Abram ended up leaving Egypt with more than he went. Um, he, he left with lots of, of wealth and riches. He had more livestock, more silver, more gold than he had when he went into Egypt. And this week, what we see is the, the narrative of Abram returning from Egypt into the land of Canaan. Um, and this land is one that God has already revealed to Abram to be a land of promise for him. It's the land that, that one day his offspring will fill and inhabit and become this great nation that God has promised them they will become. And it will be in this land that they possess and become that great nation, which will bless all the nations of the earth. And so before we begin diving into this passage, let's pray and set our hearts upon the Lord. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you that you in your grace and in your love have spoken to us in your word. We ask that you would allow our hearts and minds to be open to the things that your word says, to see the implications they have for our life, the ways that they proclaim your glory and your majesty, and your love, and your mercy, and that we would be transformed by it. Pray this morning as we look at, at this text that you would allow us to learn from Abram, to learn from you, that you would do a work in our hearts that, that can't be accomplished on our own through intellect or, or through my proclamation, but can only be done by your spirit. So we ask that you would do that in our hearts. I pray that you would use me to proclaim a word that is helpful in building up for your people, including myself. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, last week, we, in discussing this narrative of Abram going down into Egypt, we talked about the fleeting and unreliable nature of our feelings and our spiritual experiences as guides to our confidence in God. Meaning that we can't just trust what we're feeling. We can't just trust what we're experiencing to determine whether or not God's blessing is upon us, whether God's existence is true, whether his faithfulness is trustworthy, um, or, or whether or not our, our faith is as sound as we think it should be. Uh, we saw that Abram had a faltering faith, a selfish heart, a, a doubt in the promises of God. He sought to preserve his life above the life of others including his own wife, who the text shows that Abram loved. And yet, God was kind to him, not out of approval of Abram's sin, not because Abram had done anything to deserve the kindness of God, 
But God was kind to him. He was merciful toward his sinful servant. And he blessed Abram, even when Abram really deserved curses. God blessed him. And so God's grace to us as God's children in Jesus is like this. When we drift away from God, when we choose ourselves over others, when we falter in our faith, when we fail to believe the promises of God for us, God is still with us. God's grace for us is ever-present, even when we don't deserve it, even when we're prone to disbelieve it. And it's because God has to us, like he did to Abram, made promises. And God's promises are not dependent upon our, our confidence in those promises at every moment. God's promises are not contingent upon our obedience to him or our delight in him. God's promises are contingent upon his will and his trustworthiness, which we can never doubt because he is the infinite God of all things. And if he has made promises to us, then indeed they shall come to pass. And so when we drift away from God, when we choose ourselves over others, we can trust that God is with us. And what we see in our lives and what we'll see in the life of Abram is that when we experience the grace of God in our lives, after we experience a faltering of faith, a wandering into sin, that the grace of God transforms us. That we are transformed to be different than we were before. And and Abram was, and so let's read about that in the text. The text begins... With these words in the first four verses, it says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So last week's passage showed Abram going down. He was going down into Egypt and into sin. And now this text begins with Abram going up. He's going up and back into the land of promise. And Abram wasn't merely going back to Canaan from Egypt. This wasn't just a a geographical travel. He was on a pilgrimage of repentance. The the text describes it this way, that he was going back to the place where God had shown him he was supposed to be in the first place. The place where God said, this is the land for you that Abram, Abram had wandered from, and now he was returning to the place that God had shown him was his home in the first place. He was going back to the place where God had spoken promises to him. The last time Abram was at Shechem, which is where he goes, says God, God told him that his offspring will inherit this land. So Abram is not only traveling, he is repenting. Not not only on his knees in prayer, but in his practice. The very direction of his life has changed back toward the place where God has spoken to him, back toward the place where God has called him to be, the place where God's promises have been given. He is going back up to the altar of the Lord. And he's, he's going back a different man with the memories and the unresolved spirit of his Egyptian sojourn. And when he gets there, he acts in faith. It says he was proclaiming the name of the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, when you wander away from the Lord in your sin and in selfishness and in a lack of trust in the promises of God, which you will and you have, this is what repentance looks like. 
Abram left Egypt in haste. It proved hostile and unfit for him. It was not the place God had for him. And so he went back to God in his heart, and he went back to God in his behavior, and he went back to God with his body. When you falter, you can learn from Abram, and you can remember where you were when God made promises to you. This is why every week at Sojourn Montrose, we talk about the cross and the empty tomb. Because it is at the cross and in the empty tomb where the promises of God are made manifest to us. Where God has spoken a forgiveness for sins, a reconciliation to God, eternal life in spite of earthly death. And so we return there every week because God's promises are there. A practical place for us to return is to the memory of our baptism where we can remember that God made promises to us, not only spiritually, but physically, as he washed us in water into the finished work of God in Christ, who died for our forgiveness and our reconciliation into right relationship with God. We, we make this journey that Abram made in Genesis 13 every week when we come to the table of the Lord. We return to the table of the Lord where God's promises are made manifest to us, where the broken body of Christ, broken for us, is consumed. Where the shed blood of Christ poured out for our forgiveness is consumed. We return every week on this pilgrimage of repentance. Regardless of what happened the six days between, we are invited to return to praise God's name, to continue in faith. Abram's life, this is good news, brothers and sisters, Abram's life wasn't ruined in Egypt. He made mistakes in Egypt. He experienced consequences in Egypt, but his life wasn't ruined in Egypt. And we see that because his shame didn't get the best of him. He didn't consider his failure so great that he couldn't return to God and where God had made promises to him in the first place. There is always hope for a sinner with a mind to return to God. That is good news. When you wander, God will restore you. And he will not only restore you in forgiveness, but he will restore you in purpose. That's something that we see in this text that's beautiful. It would be amazing, as it were, if we could wander away from God and return and God to say, I forgive you. I'm I'm passing over your sins. They have been dealt with. But you have proved an impediment to my purposes, and so step aside. But that's not what he does. He restores us in forgiveness and in purpose. Abram doesn't only worship God, but the text says he called upon the name of the Lord. The the text is really best translated, he proclaimed the name of the Lord. So when we experience the radical love of God and his grace through the work of Christ, we have a story to tell. So we don't just repent unto forgiveness, we repent unto forgiveness and proclamation of a God who is graceful. Like the blind man who received his sight from Jesus and was interrogated by the Pharisees, the whole church is called to proclaim, I was blind, but now I see. I wandered into sin, and yet he didn't leave me. I doubted, and he proved himself true. The testimony of God's grace towards sinners is our only hope, and it is our singular message as the people of God. With that, let's 
Let's get into the conflict of our text this morning. Verses 5 through 9 say this. And Lot, who went with Abram, Lot is Abram's nephew, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So conflict emerges because they've returned from Egypt with so much new wealth and so much new livestock that trying to set up camp together is proving untenable. The land cannot support all of these, these livestock. And so there's conflict. And the conflict is heightened and, and made clear in its problem by the author saying, at that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And so these, Lot and Abram's households are foreigners in a foreign land. And so their unity is key to their safety and to their flourishing. And yet they're experiencing strife. And then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. That word there is, we are brother men. Is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. And if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And so up to this point in chapter 13, the sense of the text has been one of spiritual peace and restoration and blessing and forgiveness. And yet, here in verse 5 through 9, there is a threat to that peace that's entered in. And at the core of the threat is newly acquired wealth. Oh, the dangers of riches. But Abram proves godly and wise in this situation. And his wisdom begins with humility and a lack of self-preservation. And and his humility and his lack of self-preservation is proof that Abram is growing that he's being sanctified because just a chapter before, as they were going down into Egypt, he was full of self-preservation, of self-concern, of a desire to protect himself. And now, having returned to the promises of God in repentance, he is ready to be humble and look out for the desires of others. In Egypt, he willingly allowed his wife to be taken captive to preserve his life and to gain wealth. And now he is deferring to Lot's preferences. Lot, who has no authority over him. Lot, who is younger than him, who's his nephew, who is really at the whims of what Abram would decide. Abram says, it is better to seek peace and unity than it is to bicker and to find the best deal for myself. And and this shows love for Lot, but also it shows a new sense of trust in God in the everyday affairs of Abram's life. He has learned about God's faithfulness such that now, when faced with this conflict, he is able to sit back and trust that the Lord will care for him and provide for him, even if he doesn't choose what seems best to him. God has promised him this land, and so Abram doesn't feel a need to quibble over which part of it his livestock grazes in or where he sets up his camp. And so he tells Lot to separate from him. His only command in this text is a command toward peace. Separate me from me for the sake of peace. And he tells Lot to survey the land and to find a portion that he desires. And Lot does just that. And let's see how Lot handles this opportunity. It says, and Lot lifted up his eyes 
And he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere. Hear this. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. In the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. And Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So this portion of the text is full of of commentary on Lot's character and decision-making, and it's full full of uh, foreboding foreshadowing. The first evidence of of something bad happening, like the most clear, is that Lot moves east. Now, if you've been around here for a while, you know that when people in the Bible go east, it's not good. Good things don't happen in the east, in the Bible. East is always the direction away from God's blessing. But furthermore, there's all, all this talk of Sodom and Gomorrah and their destruction and the wickedness of the men of Sodom, and Abram is moving toward this, and so that's a foreshadowing of disaster. But, but what we see is, is not only a foreshadowing of disaster for Lot, but we see a commentary on his character. Lot is making a decision based on what he can see rather than based upon faith. And his eyes, as human eyes often do, deceive him. The, the author reveals that the eyes of Lot deceive him when the author shows the ways that Lot likely was comparing the land. He compares the land of the Jordan Valley to both the Garden of Eden and to Egypt. Now, the Garden of Egypt, the Garden of Eden and Egypt had one thing in common. They were fertile. And other than that, they are diametrically opposed in the Bible. The Garden of Eden is the place where God is king and peace and security reign and there's presence with God. There's freedom to enjoy him forever and Egypt is a place of slavery, of a serpent king, of all kinds of evil and bondage for the people of God and Lot in his own eyes looked upon the Jordan Valley and he mistook Egypt for Eden. He chooses what seems Edenic to him and what will prove Egyptian. He chooses the land near to Sodom, a town of total moral corruption that we'll read about in coming chapters when God destroys it with fire. And rabbinic interpretive tradition seems confident that Lot knew all about Sodom, that he knew the Sodomites were wicked men, that they had no moral spine, that they were full of wickedness in their hearts and in their behavior. And yet... For Lot, he was acting upon his desire for the best land for his herds, for the best security of his wealth, the best opportunity to multiply his possessions, to experience earthly security, earthly prosperity, and he was willing to sacrifice the moral high ground for the fertility of the valley. And there is great folly, brothers and sisters, in pursuing wealth and in mistaking Egypt for Eden. The the Proverbs tell us in, in Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5, it says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. 
for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and that many have, been, have experienced pain for themselves because of their love for money. And Lot would have done well to have known the words that Jesus would one day speak in Matthew 16 when he lovingly tells his disciples, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Brothers and sisters, let us not be like Lot. And it is tempting to be like Lot because we live in a land where on all sides we see fertile valleys like the Jordan River full of fertility that can sustain, protect, and multiply our earthly wealth and our sense of security. And yet, the reality for us is not unlike the reality for Lot in Genesis 13. Most of the opportunities that we will have to multiply our wealth, to experience earthly security, will involve dangerous dealings with serpents like Pharaoh and wicked men like the Sodomites. The hazard of wealth is why Jesus warned that it would be nearly impossible for the rich to inherit his kingdom. Because when we allow our eyes to guide us, we will pursue only that which we can plainly see. Consider those things that you long for, the things that draw you away from Christ. Are they not things that your eyes light upon? Things that you can see clearly? that job listing that would require you to de-emphasize your commitment to your family or to your church, the images of things that might bring you pleasure and happiness, more possessions, a beachside vacation, an appealing sexual partner, all of these things seducing you with the promises, like those promises that Lady Folly proclaims in, in Proverbs 9, this woman who is described as loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places in town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks scent, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Now, does this mean that it's inherently sinful and hazardous to enjoy some of the pleasures of this life? No. Solomon, who wrote Proverbs 9, also wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, which encourages us to enjoy this life to eat and drink and to be merry, to enjoy the wife of our youth, to be blessed by friends and good company. We are free in Christ to pursue different things in life. We're free to pursue careers that interest us and utilize the gifts that God has given us. Even if they have high salaries, we're free to pursue them. We are free to acquire wealth. The Bible is full of wealthy, faith, faithful people, and yet that doesn't mean wealth is without its hazards. But we ought not ever let our eyes or our bellies be our guides in the great decisions of our lives. Because though we are free to pursue things that we enjoy, free to enjoy wealth, to enjoy prosperous careers, we are also free in Christ to give generously. We're free in Christ to wait patiently. And we are free in Christ to make decisions that are based upon the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom rather than those things that delight our eyes. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you, it takes freedom to do those sorts of things. It takes a freedom of spirit and of character to give generously and to wait patiently and to seek first the kingdom of God. It cannot be done apart from freedom. 
And so let us be like Abram. Abram who trusted God beyond what his eyes could see. Who valued brotherly love and unity and peace above his personal preference. Abram didn't become poor in Genesis 13. This text isn't a a gospel of poverty. Abram maintains his wealth. He doesn't become poor. He doesn't cease to be able to provide for his family or his livestock. But his primary goal wasn't to advance those things. His primary goal was peace. To value the good of his kinsmen. And to be content with what he was given. Now let's see what he was given. Text goes on. It says, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot separated from him. Listen to that. The Lord comes and speaks to Abram after Lot had in haste followed the desires of his eyes. Lot in haste went into the valley of fertility and he missed out on the word of the Lord because of it. And the word of the Lord comes to Abram. It says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So God comes to Abram after Lot went to the land that seemed right in his own eyes, and God clarifies the promises that he has already made to Abram. He shows Abram the land of Canaan and tells him that all of it will belong to his offspring. As far as he could see, in every direction, it will be for his offspring. This includes, mind you, the land that Lot chose for himself. And all the lands that are currently inhabited by Canaanites and Perizzites. The offspring of Abram, according to God, will be so numerous that they will resemble the dust of the earth. And Abram's patience, his faith, and his humility have led him to this moment where he gets to experience a reminder of God's blessings that are awaiting him at a time yet to be experienced. And we know that Abram wouldn't live to see his offsprings possess the whole of Canaan. Abram wouldn't live to see his offspring become as the dust of the earth. But that that doesn't mean that the promise was less true for him. Abram's life after this moment is not about enjoying the land he's been given or the wealth that he has gained in Egypt. It is about participating with God in the coming of this great nation who will bless all the nations of the earth. Abram will falter in this journey. Abram will fail in this journey. But the trajectory of Abram's life is forever changed because of this moment. He now knows what it is that he is striving for. Before he had a promise that was vague, and now through repentance and faith, God has given him clarity, vision, and certainty of what is to come. Abram's life is now about experiencing the comfort of knowing God, participating with him in the things he is doing. And this made clear in the final portion of the passage when God calls Abram to rise up and to follow him on a journey, just like he did when he first called Abram out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. When God called Abram to rise up and to follow him, at that time into an undisclosed location for an undetermined amount of time that he would be journeying. And now Abram is called on a journey with more knowledge, more complete hope, a more complete mission. 
He's called to follow God all throughout this land that will be his and to survey that which God is going to possess for him, to establish altars of worship in Canaan. And these altars of worship in Canaan are going to be little portraits for the Canaanites and the Perizzites of what will one day become of this land, a land filled with the glory and worship of the God of the universe under the rule of Abram's offspring. It reminds me of the life of Jesus. He taught his disciples to concern themselves first with the kingdom of God. So seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Rather than the fleeting cares of the world, we are to pursue the things of God. And Jesus modeled for us a life of faith and of hope in expectation of what was to come, even when it required great patience, great suffering, and great humility. When in the wilderness of temptation at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, Satan took Jesus up to a high place. And he asked Jesus to survey the whole earth in every direction much like God asking Abram to look in every direction. And Satan told Jesus that he could have it all now, that he would give the whole world to Jesus if Jesus would just bow down to him. But Jesus resisted what was easy and what was quick for the way of the kingdom. Instead of possessing the whole world by going down into league with wickedness like Lot likely would have, he possessed the world through patience and through humility. And instead of bowing down to Satan by being raised up on a cross to endure the wrath of sin, the displeasure of God, separation from his father, and in so doing, he put to death the plagues of Satan, namely death itself. And then he raised up on the third day into victorious resurrection, but also into a new creation. A new Adam in a new garden with a new creation. And then Jesus proclaimed, after having been humble and patient and righteous in the midst of all sorts of suffering, in the midst of mockery, in the midst of having to set aside earthly pleasures and comforts, he rose up after suffering on behalf of the world and said, all authority has been given unto me. This world is now mine. And then he looked at his servants and he said, go and survey the length and the breadth and the width of it. Travel throughout it, build up altars, proclaim my name wherever you go to tell the inhabitants of what will come when I possess it in full. Brothers and sisters, the life of faith is a life of resting in the promises of God even when they have not yet come to us. The promises of a new heaven and a new earth in which sin is no more, death is no more, sickness is no more, and the promise of eternal life in the presence of God, free from all sadness and wickedness. We're called to trust in the promise that God holds close to him, those who trust him and walk by faith and not by sight, even when our circumstances tempt us to disbelieve that. And so we too are called to arise and travel the length and breadth of God's world to proclaim his name, to build up places of worship, and to show people what is to become of their world under the reign of God in Christ. There is a new king. We do this by proclaiming the good news that peace will replace strife, 
that grace will replace vengeance, that love will replace hate, and that hope will replace fear. This is why we plant churches, brothers and sisters. This is why we seek to multiply parishes all throughout our neighborhood. This is why we seek to make disciples of our neighbors. Because God has given us his world so that we can participate with him in the project of possessing and recreating it into something that isn't plagued by spiritual famine and death, but instead is brimming with the love and life of God in Christ forever. So let us not be distracted by the seemingly green pastures of worldly gain. God has much more for us, and he has much more for our neighbors. In our lives, we will have many crossroads in which we can take what seems good to our eyes, pleasurable to our senses, and safe in our judgments. But if we live like Lot, we will miss out like Lot. We will miss out on the immense freedom that comes from being generous beyond what we would normally deem as safe. We will think we are headed toward Edenic rest when we are actually headed toward Egyptian captivity. We will miss out on the joy and the pleasure of God himself by stepping into the unknown to participate in things like planting churches, like caring for orphans, like befriending outcasts, like sitting with those to whom death draws near like feeding those who are hungry and clothing those who are naked, when we reduce our judgments to that which seems good in our own eyes, we will end up unhappy, unfulfilled, and morally and spiritually shipwrecked. But to trust in God, brothers and sisters, is to gain the whole of the inheritance that he is giving us. That inheritance that the Apostle Peter says is unfading and imperishable and kept in heaven for us. To trust in God is to be able to walk the earth in confidence of one who has the authority to speak on behalf of the king. And when we speak on behalf of the king, we speak unlike any ambassadors who have ever come before us because we invite all who are weary and heavy laden and poor in spirit and without hope to enter the rest of God that comes only through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now this may come at great cost to us. It may come at great cost to your wallet. It may come at great cost to your ambitions. It may come at a great cost to your lifestyle. And as, for it, as it has for many who have gone before us and many who will follow us, it may come at great cost to your body and even your life. But the reward is greater than all of these things. Dwelling with God in his land for as far as our eyes can see for eternity. So let us rise up in faith and to follow God, longing for that better country that Abram was longing for, the one with heavenly foundations, the one that God has purchased for us, that he has promised to our offspring, and that he is inviting for our neighbors to enjoy. So let's pray and follow God into a life of trusting him together.